0: Although it actually brought back memories of when I was little and got in trouble. Well, if you would, uh, turn with me to Matthew chapter 8. We're going to be continuing on in Matthew this morning, looking at uh, verses 18 through 22. And as we've seen in our study of Matthew's gospel account, he's organized his account in a very orderly fashion. Um, He likes to group like events together uh, that might have the same theme, Um, and uh, in grouping those, he takes a break this morning. So early in chapter 8, we see that he did three specific healings, and Matthew grouped those together, and then at the end of chapter 8, we're going to see that Jesus shows his outrageous power over nature, over demons, over spiritual fallenness. And in between those two, he's he he does what's called a discipleship interlude, which is kind of geeky theological talk there, where he takes a break from all of that, and he kind of zeroes us in into two conversations that he has with uh, with a disciple and a scribe. So both of these men that we're going to look at today, they show interest in following Jesus, but we see that for different reasons, they're kind of held back from fully giving their whole hearts to him. And so we're going to look at what Jesus says to them in response. Um, And and we're going to see that this is a tough passage, so just be prepared this morning. We're going to talk about some tough things and some real challenges for us. So we're going to see what Jesus says and how we can apply it to our lives today. So let's read our passage. Um, I'd like to get some participation with you this morning. Uh, The verses should be up on the screen. There we go. Uh, So I'll read the uh, even number verses, and you as a group will read the, the odd verses. So here we go. Now, when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests. But the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And Jesus said to him, Follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. So this is tough. So I think we need to pray about this. Let's go to the Lord. Heavenly Father, I I thank you for this time to meet together to share in your word, and I just pray absolutely 100% that you'd sink your words and your truth into us, your people, and that you would get me out of the way, as Brad said, and that your truth would shine through in all of our hearts this morning, and that you'd help us see what it means for each of us to follow you wholeheartedly in everything, in every way in Jesus name amen so if you're the parent of a grown child you no doubt have had conversations with your children about major life events uh, whether it be um, a potential spouse um, a job offer uh, maybe moving to a different city or state you certainly desire to give your your kids good advice in regards to that you know for instance you might have a son or daughter say hey I got this job offer in Texas and I'm so excited about it, I'm gonna take it, I'm moving. Well as you, you as a parent, your mind's already rolling through all the different scenarios that you wanna help them understand regarding this. You wanna help give them a fuller picture, maybe more than what their excitement is letting them believe. So what, so you might ask questions like okay, um, what's your housing situation gonna be? What's your budget? Uh, Who's this boss of yours going to be? Do you have a, you know, have you struck a good relationship with them? You're going to be by yourself. You're going to be lonely. You're trying to help them through the situation and think through everything. Hopefully you're not taking the tone of, you couldn't even remember to take out the trash when you're home. So how are you going to move halfway across the country and take care of yourself? Although I'm sure all of you parents have raised your children well enough that they always take out the trash and do the dishes. So as parents, we would show them our love and graciousness by helping them see the potential hardships of what might be coming their way with this decision. So as we move into the text for today, Jesus, much like a good parent, the best parent, is helping two men see a clearer, fuller picture of what it's going to mean to follow him. He's going to tell them that he's worthy of their full allegiance And that they owe him everything in obedience and nothing less. He's going to tell them that it may cost them relationships and comfort that they really value. Now, he doesn't necessarily turn them away, as we'll see, but he wants them to know what they're getting into. So, we've seen the last few weeks in chapters 5 through 7, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is teaching, and the crowds are astonished. They're amazed at his teaching, the authority, the wisdom. And then following that, they've seen the miracles that Jesus has performed, the healings. And so here we are. The crowds are starting to to arise. They're starting to come to him, and they want to see more. Okay, what's next? So we have an account of a scribe and an account of a disciple here. Both men are excited to follow Jesus, already having seen this power and this authority. Jesus, however, in his grace, is pointing out to each, each man what might be a hindrance to them fully following him. Jesus lovingly tells them, This is going to be hard. And we need to know that. They've seen the crowds, they've seen the popularity. And he's saying, This may not be the joy ride you thought it was. Although hopefully they end up with joy, not the joy ride in the sense that they were thinking. So as we move into our text, We need to acknowledge the authority of Christ in our life. That's point one. So we're going to get to the conversations that Jesus has with these two men uh, here soon. But there's something very important we need to point out in verse 20. Jesus calls himself the son of man in his conversation with the scribe. This is the first time Jesus refers to himself that way in Matthew's gospel. And why is it so important? Jesus is claiming a title from a prophetic vision in the book of Daniel regarding the coming Messiah. So I'm going to read that to you here this morning. This is Daniel chapter 7, and I think you should be able to follow along here. Verses 13 and 14, chapter 7 of Daniel. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days, capital Ancient of Days, and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So Daniel chapter 7, referring to the coming Messiah, the coming king of kings. Jesus used this title, Son of Man, Uh, specifically in this uh, title that he was given through this prophetic vision, but he also used it in a general sense of being a man like us, you know, breathing the dust, enduring the hardship of life. He will be the unique God-man that will be the only perfect, qualified man to take our sins to the cross and rescue us. We see this Son of Man will have an everlasting kingdom, and dominion that will never be destroyed. So Jesus here is giving himself this title and saying, this is the foundation for what I'm going to say to you. You've got to understand who I am. He is preeminent. And this is reiterated in Paul's letter to the Colossians in chapter 1. This is verses 17 through 20. And he, meaning Jesus, is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he's the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. So we see here that Jesus is to be preeminent in everything. And this word preeminent just simply means having highest rank. He, he deserves everything we can give him. So we're to acknowledge the authority of Christ in our lives. So with this backdrop for these two encounters, let's get into our second point for today, which is be willing to give everything in obedience to the king. Be willing to give everything in obedience to the king. First, let's look at the scribe. So starting in uh, verse 18, it says, Now when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. And a scribe came up and said to him, Teacher, I'll follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. So who was this scribe? The ESV study notes tell us that he was a keeper of the written documents in that time. And in Israel, he would have been a teacher, an interpreter of the law, and a guardian of the law. So he would have been very much entrenched in this Jewish ruling class. He would have known his Old Testament through and through. Other translations uh, refer to this scribe, NIV translates it, teacher of the law, so you get a feel for what he does. So not only does he know the scriptures, he's a guardian of it. So with that in mind... Notice that the scribe addresses Jesus as teacher. And this is in contrast, if you remember last week, to the leper and the centurion who addressed him as Lord. So, this teacher who knows this Old Testament very well, he calls Jesus teacher. So, is he just caught up in the excitement of the moment? Because we see here that he probably has not acknowledged Jesus as his Lord yet. Is he caught up in the excitement? Is he genuinely curious about Jesus and his ministry? You know, Maybe this is the Messiah, but maybe he still wants to keep one foot back in the Jewish ruling class just to be safe. We don't know for sure, but what we do know for sure is Jesus' response to him. The scribe says, I'll follow you wherever you go, and Jesus says, I don't have anywhere to lay my head. Jesus lovingly and graciously addresses the barriers in this man's life that are going to prevent him from fully following him wholeheartedly. These idols would include comfort, security, maybe pride in his position that bought him his wealth. And this sounds familiar for us, right? I mean, we love comfort. We love security. We love to be well thought of by other people. So this isn't unique to this man. This is all of us. The problem with these things is that they can become a major stumbling block to our wholeheartedly giving our lives to the Lord and following him if we let them get out of control. So now you might think of the scene from the nativity. I don't know if you've seen this movie or not, but there's a point where the three wise men are getting ready to go on this journey to follow the star, and they're debating about whether they're going to go and see this newborn king or not because it's a long journey. It's months long. And one of the wise men's having a really hard time with this. He's kind of having a pity party about this. He looks down in despair and he says, But what about my linens, my spices, my figs, my dates? All these little things that he's so accustomed to and that make him comfortable. He just can't bear the thought of being without them. And in a sense, that's a little bit of what Jesus is saying here to this scribe. He says, In order to follow me, you're going to have to be willing to give up the comforts and the status that you now enjoy. And even deeper than that, as we've said, the scribe addressed Jesus as teacher. Jesus, I believe, in his response to this guy, he hits the core of what's going on with this scribe. This scribe is not fully committed yet, and Jesus says, you're going to have to get off the fence and acknowledge me as Lord. And you may know people like this, family or friends, that, you know, whenever you bring up Jesus, they might speak favorably about him. They might say, yeah, he's he's a good teacher. He's says a lot of good things. Um, he's cool. But it's clear when you look at their life, they haven't yet given lordship to Jesus by the way they're living. In an article by Ken Ham from Answers in Genesis, and, and just a side note, for you parents and grandparents, Answers in Genesis is a terrific resource for you to help disciple your kids and your grandkids. They're truly one of, one of the few institutions that are still sticking with biblical truth, as it should be. So that's just an extra there. Uh, they're a great resource. But this article uh, from Ken Ham talked about um, a study that had been done by LifeWay Research, and it revealed this is not good. It revealed that 30% of those who considered themselves to be evangelical Christians thought Jesus was a good teacher, but not God. This is 30% in this study of evangelical Christians that thought that. So, obviously, major red flag. Now, I'm thankful to be at Harvest here where, you know, week in and week out, we get biblical teaching. And I know that you are too. But in this day day and age, in our personal Bible study and in our group studies, we really need to have an aspect of being a watchman on the wall as we do our studies to be able to combat false teaching as it comes at us. You might also remember C.S. Lewis. He famously stated, Jesus does not leave himself just being a teacher as an option for us. He said he was either a liar, a lunatic, or the Lord. I mean, think about it. Think about how many people have given their lives to the Lord over the centuries. And if this was somehow false, which it's not, that would make Jesus the greatest con artist of all time. I mean, not even close. But we know that's not true. So you might say to someone, again, what do you think about Jesus? And again, they'll say, well, he teaches good things, all this. And then you say, well, okay, what about the part where he claimed to be God? And then he died on the cross for our sins and rose from the grave. They say, well, yeah, I I don't know, I guess, maybe, yeah. It's just simply not an option Jesus leaves us. Jesus forces us to make a decision. And that brings us back to the scribe. Jesus, I believe, is drawing the line in the sand for him. You're going to have to call me Lord, and in so doing give up the comfort and security that you know and hold dear. It's going to change everything. You know, Jesus' response is kind of like uh, when you're younger and you're, you know, playing around with your friends and you're wrestling and hitting each other, and somebody inevitably is going to pull back and say, you want a piece of me? Yeah, you want a piece of me? Well, what's the classic response to that? That's right. I don't want just a piece. I want the whole thing. And as goofy as that is, that's what Jesus is saying here. He's like, I don't want just part of you. I want the whole of you and who you are. We're going to have to be willing to give everything for Jesus in obedience that he calls us to give up. And we see here in verses 21 and 22 that Jesus is talking about this same principle to the disciple. In verse 21 it says, another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. Ouch, okay Lord, what does that mean? This is a tough passage, but before we get into it, I want to encourage you that whenever you run into a passage like this that, man, right off the bat sounds like that's tough or that's confusing or it might leave you bewildered, I would encourage you to attack it and dig into it. Um, you know, seek some of us out here, JD or the shepherds or some of those who are trusted here to be able to help you through these passages because most of the time when you dig far enough, you're going to find that treasure. Even if it's just peace of knowing more deeply what Jesus is talking about, you're going to find a treasure and be excited about it. So in regards to the burial, there's a few possible scenarios that might be in play here. And I'm just going to read to you from the InterVarsity Press commentary because I think it does a terrific job of helping us understand this situation and what was probably going on here. It really helped me out. So follow along here. I think it will help. Jesus' demand may prove less harsh in some respects than it sounds to us at first. The disciples probably not asking permission to attend his father's funeral later that day his father likely was either not yet dead or had been buried once already. When a father died, mourners would gather immediately and a funeral procession would take his body to the tomb, leaving no time for a bereaved son to be talking with rabbis. For a week afterward, the family would remain mourning at home and not go out in public. But current Semitic idioms show that, quote, I must first bury my father can function as a request to wait until one's father dies, perhaps for years, so that one may fulfill the ultimate filial obligation before leaving home. And he continues, says a custom practice only in the period immediately surrounding the time of Jesus may illumine this passage more directly, however, It says, in Jesus' day, the eldest son would return to the tomb a year after the father's death to rebury his father by neatly arranging his now bare bones in a container and sliding it into a slot in the wall. How would you like to have that responsibility? If the father of the man in Matthew's account has died, this young man cannot be referring to his father's initial burial and so must be asking for as much as a years delay for a secondary burial. So did you catch all that? That was kind of a lot there. So the disciple basically there's two scenarios here. One is the disciple's father has not yet died and may not even be in, his death may not be in immediate sight. It might be years. So he might be the eldest son in a Jewish family and his responsibility would be to take care of his parents even up through their burial when they die. The other scenario would be if the disciples talking about a second burial to rearrange his father's bones, that could have been as much as a year away. Lastly, if the father's disciple had just died, he wouldn't be out and about talking with Jesus right now. He would have been at home and mourning with his family. So that brings a little bit of perspective to to this, uh, this verse we're looking at, and I don't necessarily share that just simply to make it more palatable, because Jesus says what he means, and he means what he says. This isn't about making this more comfortable, but it does, I think, help us in understanding the heart of Jesus' response to this man. We know that Jesus would not contradict his own word. Remember one of the Ten Commandments, honor your father and mother. We know, too, that as we look ahead to Matthew 15, Jesus actually chastises the Pharisees for not taking care of their parents. And I'm going to read this to you. So this is from Matthew chapter 15. He says, Then the Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. You can almost hear these guys kind of huffing and puffing. They're like They didn't wash their hands before they ate. It almost sounds like kids eating at a dinner table. You know, Mom, sissies didn't wash their hands. and not eating their green beans. And Jesus answered them, And why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God commanded, Honor your father and mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, If anyone tells his father or mother, What would you have gained from me is given to God. He need not honor his father. So for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. So in other words, these Pharisees weren't taking care of their parents the way that they should have, basically. And our sweet and our soft and our nice Jesus, he continues on. You hypocrites. Well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. So this is all in relationship to the way that these people are treating their mother and father. So back to our passage, Jesus clearly is not telling this disciple to dishonor his father. That's not what's happening. But no matter what the situation is, and and we don't necessarily know for sure, Jesus is clearly saying to us, and this is what we need to take home with us. He says, I know you have things you need to take care of, that you think you need to take care of. But I need to be clear with you. I'm the Lord, and I take priority in your life. I need you to be willing to give everything for me in obedience, even if your family may not like it or disagree with it or maybe even disown you. He says, I know what's best for you. I know the best timing for you and your father and your family, so just follow me and trust me. And I know that many of you harvesters, I would say probably just about all of us, have had to give up relationships with family and friends for the sake of Christ. And it's a hard thing. And if you know, if we are a follower of Jesus, that, that's gonna happen. That, that's gonna be part of it. A few other points about this burial scenario. We also don't know any of the subsequent conversations that Jesus might have had with this disciple after the fact. It's very possible that later on down the road, let's say, let's say the disciple's father is still alive, Jesus very well later on could have said, okay, your father's in bad shape now, go take care of him. That's very possible. We don't know for sure, but that's just something to think about. And just one more thought regarding this burial scenario. What if while Jesus is talking to this disciple about his father's burial, in the back of his mind, he's thinking about his own impending burial because it's coming within the next few years. Maybe Jesus was thinking, and I don't know this, this is just speculation, so take it for what it's worth. Maybe Jesus was thinking, my burial may come before your father's. So he says to both his disciple, this disciple, and to the scribe, I am the Lord, and your allegiance and obedience belongs to me. So this is tough stuff today, and questions might arise about the difficulty of these passages. Why does it have to be this way? Why does it have to be like this? Or what's this for? You know, what, what, What's the point of all of this? So this brings us to the third point, and the final 45 minutes of this sermon. <laughs> Just kidding. We need to understand the significance of enduring hardship for Christ. There's a significance to it. You might say, what? In full allegiance, we need to follow the example of Christ in his hardship and in his suffering. In a broken and fallen world, there's just no other way for the believer. And you might remember Jesus in the garden. Just before the crucifixion, he's crying out to the Father, Lord, if <laughs> let this cup pass from me if there's any other way. Father, is, is there any other way to do this? And we know that Jesus was obedient to his will. In order for our sins to be forgiven, Jesus had to take them to the cross with him. It had to happen. He had to suffer. He had to shed his blood. So as we look to our great rescuer, our example, the Lord Jesus, and see his suffering, we understand that to follow him with all of our being will be to suffer in a world full of evil. We're going to be swimming upstream, so to speak. So what does it look like for Jesus to have our full obedience, our full allegiance, to have highest rank in our lives, as we talked about? What does it mean for Jesus to be the honored guest in our homes or wherever we're at? As the honored guest, the honored Lord who is with you, how do we speak to people? What do we think about How do we spend our money? Lord, what music do I listen to? What shows do I watch? How do we disciple our kids? How do we love our spouse? You say, boy, you're really running the gambit here. But this is what Jesus is saying. He's saying, I want all of you. There should be no part of our lives that is not given over to the Lord Jesus. And to underscore this, I'd like to read a quote to you. Sorry about that. I'd like to read a quote from Alistair Begg who says this only the way he can and this is in regards to we as Christians today in our upstream swim how we are fighting against the culture and how we are just completely at odds with them at this point so he says to bow beneath his lordship is as we have seen to embrace the reversal of values which are prominent in our culture It is to prize what the world thinks pitiable and to question what the world deems desirable. In other words, there will be a sense of dissonance in the child of God with so much that flushes over that individual out of the culture of that day. Whether it is in terms of worldview, language, emphasis, or in terms of degeneration of moral values and absolutes, The child of God who is able to say with clarity and conviction, Jesus Christ is Lord to me, will know in their lives not 100% success, but a growing awareness of the fact, I'm different from this. I used to be happy to go along with this. I used to be able to speak this way. I used to be able to laugh at these jokes. I used to be able to listen to this filth. But now something has happened. And I believe that Jesus is Lord of my life, a reversal of values, end quote. So we see that in a world full of evil, we as followers of Christ will be swimming against the current. It's going to be hard. It's going to be hard, and Jesus says that. It's the natural path for the believer. It's the narrow gate. But as we finish up here this morning, it will be. It's going to be worth it. So don't give up. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 5 that we rejoice in our sufferings because suffering produces, some of you know this, endurance. Endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame or disappoint us. As God's love is being poured out into our hearts by his Holy Spirit, God's conforming us to the image of Christ as we endure this evil world. He's recrafting our hearts. Remember, we're his workmanship. He's recrafting our hearts and our desires with endurance, character, hope, and love by the power of his spirit. Also, don't give up because we're going to be rewarded for this. Jesus says you're going to be rewarded for this. If we look ahead again, can't help but look ahead in chapter 19 of Matthew. You might remember Peter said to Jesus, Lord, we've left everything to follow you. So what are we going to have? What do we have left? And Jesus so graciously answers him, Truly I say to you in the new world, when the Son of Man, their Son of Man again, will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. I mean, think about that. These fishermen... These guys are now, they're going to be judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And, and this is us. And everyone, everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. Amen? Peter tells us in his second letter that we're waiting for the new heavens and the new earth in which righteousness dwells. So as we continue to be made into the image of Christ, we're going to be more at home there with him in the home of righteousness than we can ever imagine being home here anywhere. And we're going to be, this is the most important, we're going to be united to the Lord Jesus forever. We're going to be with him forever, rejoicing in his righteous reign. I'm going to throw one more at you here. This is Revelation 21. John, this is, this is what we have to look forward to. This is the reward. In chapter 21, John says, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, and Brad referenced this this morning, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Jesus says, I'm making everything new. So in this degenerate world, we are to love the world, we are to bring them to Christ, but not be of it. Don't give up. Be strong, stand firm, follow Jesus wholeheartedly with full allegiance by the power of his spirit. Keep praying for your kids no matter what their age is. Keep praying for them. Keep preaching the gospel. Keep meeting together. Keep standing against evil. Keep fighting the good fight. Paul told Timothy to wage the good warfare. It's going to be worth it. It's going to be worth it. So let's pray. Father, thank you again for the word that you've given us, the power of it, your love in the word that you display to us. And I pray that as we go on from here, that we learn uh, what you want us to take from these accounts and that you break down any barriers in our lives that are causing us to not follow you fully. And I pray that you draw us by your Holy Spirit to walk more closely and lovingly with you so that we can shine your light out into this evil world. I ask this in Jesus' name, Amen.